This is Midwife Speaking, the podcast about the human experience of pregnancy, birth, and babies. We aim to help people tap into their own power to make informed choices from the heart with evidence-based information. Our midwife is Carrie Duncan, certified professional midwife and licensed provider in the state of Oregon. And I am your host, Jessica Martin-Weber, founder of The Leaky Boob. For more of Midwife Speaking, including birth stories and information, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Midwife Speaking. Find Carrie on Instagram at The Wise Woman Next Door and Jessica at The Leaky Boob. Want to share your pregnancy, birth, or postpartum story with us? We'd love to hear from you. Please email birthstories at midwifespeakingpodcast.com. Your story may be just what we're looking for to share and connect with others. This is Midwife Speaking. Hello, everybody. So for our first podcast on Midwife Speaking, we need to do some introductions. Carrie, I know who you are. You know who I am. I mean, you've had your hand in my vagina, so we are close, but... Intimate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you helped me catch my youngest. You helped me birth her, catch her, and all of that. So I know you pretty well, and you know me very well. <laughs> but our audience doesn't know you quite as well. Let's do some intros. People know me from the Leaky Boot. How and what do they need to know about you? So my name is Carrie Duncan. I am a certified professional midwife in the state of Oregon. I am licensed in my state. I have been attending births professionally for the last 20 years. I feel weird saying that because I'm like, is that real? <laughs> And for most of my career, I have worked at a freestanding birth center called Andalus Water Birth Center. We do births in our birth center, our non-hospital affiliated birth center, and at home. I have actually been an employee at Andalus since 2001. So I think I'm the longest employee that they've had. I'm OG. And during my midwifery career, I've been really active. So I have attended a high volume of births since I began. I've also worked out of the country with different programs, and I lived out of the country for a little while and was a midwife. Our birth center does a lot of water births. We are a water birth center. However, that, that does not mean that everybody has water births when they come to us, but it's kind of our area of expertise. I'm also a mom. I am a mother that has birthed two of her own children, and then I also have two stepchildren that I also mother. So a lot of times I'll be talking about my kids and people are like, man, how many kids does she have? Well, the answer is truly two out of my body and then two other kids. So I've done a lot of parenting and my kids are old, you know, a lot of times I talk about them like they're, you know, little babies, but my oldest is 23 and my youngest is 14. And then my uh, two other stepkids are 16 and 18. So lots of family ties, lots of 
parenting time. Um, I was a young mom, so I started having babies when I was 19, and for my own birth is what led me to become a midwife. So let's talk about your birth story. A lot of what we're going to be talking about on Midwife Speaking is sharing birth stories. We're going to share birth stories, and then we're going to kind of discuss them in depth. But let's start with your birth stories. These are what led you into, your own birth is what led you into midwifery. Your experience giving birth opened the door, as it did for many midwives, it opened the door to exploring that as, as a calling for yourself as well. Your birth stories. And yeah. I love how different both of them are. And I think people might be surprised when they hear a midwife sharing their own story. And we expect, I think, a certain, it's going, a certain outcome and a certain model. It's going to follow the script almost for what a midwife's births are going to look like. And I love how diverse your birth stories are. So we're starting Midwife speaking off with your own birth stories as a mother, as a, a midwife, and what gave birth really to you becoming a midwife. So take us through your first birth. Ah, what an honor to be the to be the starting story. The year was 1996. No, I'm just kidding. So yeah, 23 years ago, I I gave birth to my oldest daughter. I was a teen parent. I was not familiar with midwives prior it wasn't some you know a lot of people have the story of you know I knew since I was eight you know I used to pretend with my stuffed animals that was not me <laughs> I at the time I was a pretty leading a pretty alternative lifestyle I lived in a school bus now tell me if this sounds familiar now by the way I thought these were my original ideas I had no idea that this you know, existed outside of my bubble. So remember, there wasn't the internet or anything like that back then. I'm living on a farm in a school bus with my partner. I got pregnant. And, you know, for me, I just felt like there's no way, I, you know, I don't know what the options are, but there's no way I'm giving birth in a hospital because that's like too mainstream for me. <laughs> there has to be another way. And I believe the first time I read the word midwife was in an article in Time magazine in an outhouse <laughs> in the farm that I was living in. And I was, I was probably about eight weeks pregnant at the time, didn't know I was pregnant, but I read the article while I was indisposed. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it planted a seed, at, you know, and, I, and I, I, again, I didn't even know I was pregnant. When it came time, uh, this is also in the state of Minnesota, so I was away from my home state of Oregon. Um, so when I, when I found out I was pregnant, I went to a nurse practitioner in Minnesota, and I had pretty routine type, a pretty routine type experience of prenatal care, but, a you know, things kept happening. So I believe that the person taking care of me probably thought that I was higher risk because I was a teen parent and I lived in a really alternative setting in this converted school bus. You know, I had hairy armpits, all that, you know what I mean? Like she, I think probably judging me <laughs> to some extent. And, you know, the first thing that happened was, you know, at 
one of my appointments, you know, she was, she did, you know, palpate and feel my belly. And she said, you know, I'm just really nervous. I, I feel like you could have a really small baby. And so I would like you to get an ultrasound and, you know, check that out. Well, that, you know, when you're pregnant and you hear something like that, oh no, I have a small baby. Like, I remember crying. I don't want a small baby. Right. I'm a regular baby. Like, why do I have a small baby? Um, well, it turns out we just had my dates wrong. <laughs> so we were a couple weeks off on my dates. So, you know, that was kind of the first thing of like, wow, I feel they also screened me over and over for drug and like asked the questions for drug and alcohol dependency, which at that time I was living on bird seed and organic vegetables. <laughs> so <laughs> I was definitely not in the world of I think they were just judging this young, you know, hippie mom. And so, you know, I knew that I was going to need some sort of alternative care in order to feel seen and respected and um, have my lifestyle understood. I felt misunderstood. So when I came to Oregon, I literally looked in the yellow pages under the word midwife. <laughs> back now remember before the internet we had to look in books for stuff and <laughs> in my area uh, there was a few listings and so I called the people on the listing and I happened to meet a midwife that lived basically right up the road from me I was really low risk I was young and healthy and that midwife did understand my lifestyle and you know kind of got a feel for okay, this is a, this is a, like, super organic hippie girl, like, she's, <laughs> and were you, you know, in the school bus? In the school bus, yeah, by the way, at this point, too, somebody gave me the book, I mean, fill in the blank, it's, like, the most obvious book, they were, like, here, I've got a book for you to read, and it was Social Midwifery, and, you by know, Ina Gaskin. by Ina May Gaskin, the classic midwifery text, and lo and behold, I found out that not only was I doing this, you know, in the 90s, but there was a community of people that started doing basically exactly this in the 70s and were, you know, they're still doing it now as far as I know. So I started to feel not so alone and my interest was peaking because I was like, oh, I'm already on a track, you know. So I ended up uh, had, you know, again, really low risk nothing doing, really, you know, normal, straightforward uh, prenatal care. My midwife came to my school bus <laughs> <laughs> to provide me with, you know, appointments and, you know, checked it out. It was December 30th when I went into labor. It was my due date, one of those. And I labored, you know, I, I, I labored in a really straight, what I now know was a really straightforward way. You know, I had some emotional things that happened during the labor. I wasn't very well connected with my kid's dad, who was my main support person. But, you know, I, I got through it and had this really kind of straightforward, lovely school bus birth. <laughs> and during that, you know, my impression of my midwife, I was just, I was just in awe of this person who was just acting like this was no kind of, not no big deal, but nothing unusual you know she was 
sitting on the edge of my bed, you know, in the bus, and she was eating my Harry and David truffles from Christmas <laughs> my grandparents had given me. Poor thing. I had, you know, the food we had was like, you know, seeds and nuts and <laughs> Uh, it was winter, you know, <laughs> she was probably like, uh, anyway, <laughs> compassion, just have compassion and empathy for her. Anyway, she was, nonetheless, she was just really just making it feel like it was a normal thing to be doing. Right. She really gave me this sense that everything was fine. Even when it seemed crazy, I would look over her and look over at her and make eye contact and just become really reassured, like, okay, this is fine. Keep going. You know, I was allowed to do anything I wanted, be in whatever position I wanted, make any sounds that I wanted. And, and, and they just tended to me, which was, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'd ever had that experience before that experience. So I gave birth to a seven pound, two ounce baby, a little girl. Everything went great. I did end up you know, shortly after that birth, I did tell the midwife that I was, that attended me, hey, I'm interested in this. If you need somebody to go with you to births, you know, I, I could do that. I would be willing to do that. I certainly didn't think she would take me up on it. But at that time in Portland, there wasn't a really established midwifery school. Most people were learning in an apprenticeship-based model without formal schooling, and midwifery is really hard work. And so she did ask me to come to some births and labors and, and basically be a doula. So, you know, I started doing that when my kid was like one. So a year after you gave birth, you started attending births with the same midwife Yep. Doula capacity. Yep. So she was having me, you know, it would be like, oh, these people live out on a dirt road, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, basically there was nothing that could shock me because I had just given birth in a school bus. Um, you know, I feel like in the nineties it was still kind of alternative right. to be doing this. Yeah. And so a lot of the folks that we were attending were in similar situations. They were either, you know, homeschooling, which was kind of a radical idea, or, you know, homesteading, or, you know, living kind of an alternative lifestyle. So I guess by virtue of giving birth in that school bus, she pretty much could trust me with, you know, <laughs> not being shocked by anybody's, you know, choices or living situation or things like that. So that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. How did you know and when did you know that you wanted to be more than, than attending births kind of in this informal capacity and make it an official thing with the training and become a CPM? How did you, how did you know and when did you know? Yeah. Um, well, I knew right away. Um, back then, there was no word called doula. Right. I had been doing it for years before I ever heard it called a name. Right. Uh, it was like you were a midwife's assistant, basically. And I knew right away, but I was 19. I had a big feeling that I wouldn't be taken seriously as, you know, somebody who was 20. <laughs> and, you know, I was licensed by the time I was, I think, 24. Okay. 
so really young. It felt, it felt funny. Most of the women giving birth were significantly older than me that I was attending. They were at least, you know, they were older than me. So I, I felt funny. Um, and, but I did it anyway. I looked so young at that age that I would actually do things like wear lipstick, <laughs> even though I did not wear makeup at that time at all. I would basically dread people asking my age because you were afraid you'd be judged as a midwife or as a care provider? Yeah, so young. Because I was a licensed midwife by the time I was like 24, you know, and I'm helping. It, it was just a funny feeling. Yeah. Um, I, you know, now that I'm in my 40s, <laughs> I feel like, ah, yeah, now I'm helping people my daughter's age have babies. And my students are people that are my daughter's age. Um, so, you know, we all have that picture of a midwife who's the crone. Right. The wise woman is the crone. Right. right. You know, and so it felt like, um, I don't know. I just had a little issue with it when I, it was my own issue. Right. Right. A, a kind of internalized uh, ageism. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Of like, how, wh like, who am I to, to have this, what I felt was like sacred knowledge, you know what I mean? Or, you know, it is a sacred knowledge and you yeah. are the wise woman next door. <laughs> now, now I am. Yeah. <laughs> you are. <laughs> it is, it's a, a beautiful thing in midwifery how that knowledge is handed down because it's not yeah. just your own knowledge it is a knowledge that generation after generation after generation after generation is is handing down in so many ways and that's yeah it, it, it's an each one teach one model it's still an apprenticeship based type model you know i've been so blessed to be able to train so many students many of them are in my community right now that are my peers and so you know it's just it's really been such a neat journey to kind of be on like to play the long game you know and go through and be doing this for so many years it has been really neat to just kind of see the the progression of individuals and right. a, a lot of people that I have attended their births became interested in midwif midwifery just like I did <laughs> from being attended by a midwife and so they're now birth workers so that's just that's just so neat and I feel so so blessed to be a part of that yeah so I mean being so young and you know taking care of most you know people that were older than me and you know having found your calling so young is kind of a weird thing yeah. and it definitely led to a sense of like imposter syndrome of like, you know, who am I to be, to be doing this right now, you know, at this age. And so it's, it's really unique. I've had a really unique trajectory. I've never not had a purpose. I've always known what my calling, what my purpose was, even when I didn't know lots of other things about my life. I did know that. So right. and it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> well, having had you as my care provider it's definitely a blessing for me so <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm thrilled you knew so young and you are no imposter I'm thrilled you knew <laughs> because that, that wealth of experience at this stage in your career and your life you are the wise woman you are the experienced voice but that experience and that 
knowledge that was handed to you so young when you started your training and became certified, uh, it wasn't just your own. It's one of the most beautiful things about midwifery is how that knowledge is handed down generation after generation, each new generation teaching the next or learning from the previous, that each new generation learning from the previous and various cultures uh, coming yeah. together, supporting families as new babies are brought into their home. You know, birth is old and the information hasn't changed a hell of a lot. You right. know, like the way, you know, whenever I'm teaching childbirth class and I whip out the, you know, VHS tape and stick it in there and people are like, whoa, how old is this? I'm like, it really doesn't matter because it could be, you know, from the 1800s, the process of giving birth is really similar. <laughs> so it doesn't, you know, it's just kind of this timeless thing. And a, a side note, you know, the, the wise woman thing midwives used to be called first of all we were witches right you know just a little history on that and why I chose to be you know to call myself the wise woman next door um why which means wise woman um and and midwife in some translations also means wise woman so the wise woman next door basically means the midwife next door <laughs> And my thinking about it was like, hey, I'll loan you a cup of sugar. I'll help you have a baby on your living room floor. <laughs> no, just average, you know, next door neighbor kind of stuff. So. <laughs> okay, so with your first baby. Yes. You gave birth in a school bus. You were a young teen mom and attended by a midwife. This ended up giving birth to you becoming a midwife as well. Yeah. And then you had baby number two, uh, which mm -hmm. is a very different birth story. Tell us about your second birth story. Well, really, sure. you're, you giving birth the first time, then you being birthed as a midwife. And now your, your next birth story uh, is with another child. Well, it's interesting because I feel like the first, the first birth story is was really the birth of me as a midwife and a mom, of course. Um, and the second birth was maybe the birth of me being the wise woman <laughs> because I learned a lot during that birth. So my second daughter, my kids are 23 and 14. So my daughter was almost 10 when her sister was born. And you New were partner. A you were a and midwife. I was a midwife for many years at that point. So you know, I was 29. So I was a midwife. I mean, I had been attending births for almost a decade at that point. And, but I still had that new midwife, uh, the way that I see it now, um, and what I see play out with the new midwives in my community and the people I train is like, you have to have kind of this, I don't want to say an arrogance, because that sounds negative. Um, but you have to have this bravery to do this work and so I was still even 10 years into the game I still had just kind of like this bravery birth works birth pretty much always works right you know even in whatever circumstances babies come out things work out you know occasionally they don't but it's so rare you know we can trust it all of that and and I still have that but there's, I now have a, a wisdom that is like, <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Your confidence in, in 
a process yeah. with awareness that the process doesn't always respect itself. And also we're part of nature. The way that I really see humans is we're part of nature and nature is, is not perfect and it's, and it's, it's imperfect. It can seem cruel, you know, things live, things die, you know, disease comes, all the things, you know, so it is not, it doesn't care about your ego. And so for the second birth, almost 10 years later, I made some really interesting choices, choices that I've spent a lot of time reflecting on. I chose not to name somebody specific to be my midwife since I had a huge, you know, circle of midwife. Basically all my friends were midwives. Right. So I received what I would call spotty prenatal care. I basically had a prenatal, you know, when I was visiting with a friend, she would take my blood pressure. She would feel my belly. She would you know, ask me a few questions. Um, but I didn't dwell on it. I didn't spend a lot of time on it. Um, didn't write it down very much. And then when it came time for me to give birth, you know, I ended up calling one of my friends who was, was fairly, you know, she was a brand new midwife. I ended up having complications. So basically my labor began on a Thursday and I thought, oh, I'm just going to bloop this baby out. Second babies fly right out. No problem. Probably won't even need to call a midwife. <laughs> I'll, I'll probably just spontaneously have a baby and then I'll call somebody afterwards and they can come clean me up or whatever. That did not happen. This can be a very long story, but I'm going to make it a short story. I ended up laboring for three days. So my labor started on a Thursday. I had her on a Sunday. And during that time, a bunch of stuff unfolded. So basically, I just, I had this prolonged labor. I, my water broke on day one. So that can be a problem. And indeed was a problem for me. She ended up having meconium. So that was another factor. And try, I tried many, many, many different things. I ended up calling many midwives to my birth. And um, wasn't able to get my baby out and ended up having to make the, the call to transport to a hospital, which I was scared to do. I, I mean, in my kind of arrogance, I hadn't created a very good paper trail for myself. And so I was confronted with having to go to the hospital as a provider and not provide them with, my, with very good records, which felt terribly vulnerable it would you know that I would never do that for a client of mine we're very impeccable about our record keeping but I, I didn't have that so on the day that I transported I called a hospital that I knew but the midwife that attended me in my school bus was now a nurse midwife and I made like a deal with God or something and said if she is there transported to a little country hospital and I live in the city of Portland um, then I'll go in and we called and she was there and so basically the midwife that attended me you know 10 years before and ate truffles on the foot of my bed attended me in the hospital where I had to end up having a cesarean for uterine infection so choriamnionitis infection of the uterine like lining basically yeah. So I ended, it was basically, I had a dysfunctional labor and I was just starting to develop 
symptoms when we went in. So, you know, a little bit of an elevated temperature. My baby's heart rate was up. My heart rate was up a little bit, but only slightly. But I ended up, the infection was pretty pretty intense in me, but not my baby. They actually cultured my baby and she did not have an infection. So she spent a tiny bit of time in the NICU and in their tiny little NICU with like three isolates. And then after the culture came in, the, they did a rush culture. She was negative. And so they returned her to me and I popped her on the boob and she didn't leave there for four years. <laughs> <laughs> So needless to say, obviously that's the very like abridged version, but very different from the first time around, really changed me as a midwife for the better, I believe, you know, I'm just more, I mean, I really understand, I really understand that you can be doing everything right and it still can not go the way that you want it. Right. So right. that was a really good lesson for me to learn. Right. It is nature, and I think that's an important point. This, for years, I know I was a big part of saying the phrase, trust birth, trust the birth process, and, and there is a big part of me that still does, but I also know, like you, I've had experiences that have shown me I can trust birth, but it's still nature, and sometimes, let's just be frank here, nature doesn't always give a damn. No, I like the saying, birth is as safe as life gets. Uh, there you go. Yes. <laughs> so basically, anything can happen. I mean, yes, it usually works. Yes, you usually walk through your day and, and everything's fine. Nothing happens. You don't get in a car accident. You don't, you know, fall in a well, like, you know, whatever. But then one time you might, <laughs> you know? And so I like that. I think that's a really real, I always snicker when I hear that because to me, that means anything can happen. And so uh, that is the case for having a midwife. <laughs> birth anywhere. Yep. Case for birth anywhere. That said, there are some candidates for an out of hospital birth and those that are truly candidates for hospital birth primarily. That is, there are safer options for different people. There are risk factors yes. that, say, that, that say, hey, these are considerations that we need to keep in mind in selecting a care provider and a birth environment. Yep. Some people really are not candidates for an out-of-hospital birth. That is absolutely correct. As midwives, we only take care of low-risk women. We do not guess who is low-risk. We do not look at a person and the person seems healthy and that means they're low-risk. So there are definite criteria that we base that on. The reason midwives have such great statistics is because we only take care of the low-risk. Um, so the more low-risk you are, the less likely you are to have complications arise during the course of your prenatal care or your birth. So there are things that could be pre-existing that would create risk factors. For example, if you had asthma really bad and you had to use a nebulizer or you had to use your inhaler, that would be a risk factor. Now, we have a couple different, if, you, if your asthma was well controlled, you would still be a candidate for out-of-hospital birth. But if you struggled to control your asthma, then you would not be. 
same with gestational diabetes. If you were had just if you had diabetes, period, you're not a candidate. And if you develop gestational diabetes, you can still be a candidate if you can if you can control it with diet. Right. Okay. Right. So those I'm just picking on those two because those are two conditions that people are really familiar with, but there's a huge list of them, basically. So all of those little pre-existing things, also some things can develop during the course of a pregnancy. So things like high blood pressure, that's probably the biggest one, right? High blood pressure, you could start out with normal blood pressure. And if it creeps to a high range during your course of prenatal care, or even in your labor, that could also put you in a higher risk category where we either have to transfer your care or transport you to the hospital. So right now, the world is paying a lot of attention to coronavirus or COVID-19. That's, uh, that's kind of the big thing uh, dominating our news cycle, our, uh, our social media feeds, all of that. And we are hearing reports, and you have experienced this already. Uh, it's just been a few weeks in the United States that this has become such a dominant conversation. Uh, we are currently practicing social distancing uh, or even social isolation. Our schools are canceled. And there are more and more people that are exploring the possibility of an out-of-hospital birth that are currently pregnant, that were planning a hospital birth because of the coronavirus situation. The risk involved, which we'll touch on in just a moment, the risk involved in possibly having a baby, giving birth, or even going to your care provider uh, for prenatal appointments uh, is something that we're all having to consider. And families are making some new decisions in light of recent circumstances surrounding the COVID-19 and midwives are are seeing an influx of at least inquiries people who are asking about the possibility of an out-of-hospital birth attended by a midwife mm -hmm. so let's talk just a little bit about that for those who are thinking oh no I don't think I want to go to the hospital to give birth. That seemed like a great idea six months ago, but now that I'm I'm weeks or days away possibly from giving birth, the idea of going to this place where people are going to get care and treatment for COVID-19 is a very scary prospect. What yeah. it is, I, mm -hmm. I, I know I would be afraid of it. It's mm -hmm. a reasonable concern and these are good questions to be asking. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, so when I'm, I, ju I actually just spent three hours on a, a Zoom meeting because of social distancing. We did not meet in person. We met virtually. Basically, most of the midwives in my state, or at least in the Portland metro area, were on the meeting. And we are having to make emergency accommodations for really changing the way that we provide care to existing clients. So people that were already planning an out-of-hospital birth, either at a birth center or at home, and then also dealing with people that are choosing to seek alternatives to going to the hospital. And in some cases, hospital providers are encouraging, you know, low-risk people to get in contact with a community midwife in order to decrease their chances of exposure. Right. So this is a really real thing. We are making some really big changes. We are exploring options to space out prenatal care. Also, 
protect ourselves, we're having to really think about, we are not able to social distance from our clients during birth. And so we are having to be very conservative, I guess I would call it. I was going to say stingy. <laughs> conservative with our space, you know, which affects everything. It affects my kids. You know, I'm like, nope, you can't go to your boyfriend's house. Nope, you can't, you know, have basically much contact outside of our own family because I have to care for people, you know, that are, that are, I can't pass this thing. Um, I can't get sick, basically. So it is a really real thing. There's, you know, every single midwife that was on that call today reported experiencing increased inquiries. Some people would be good candidates. I would say if you are a person who had tossed around the idea of an out-of-hospital birth already and knew and had other pregnancies under your belt that were low risk, that um, giving birth out of the hospital, even transferring in late, we have people that are calling that are 37 weeks pregnant, three weeks till they are due, you know? And so I would say that if you've had other babies, if you've thought of this before, if this is not new information to you, then you're in a, a better place as far as we're concerned. So it's a really interesting time. Of course, we use all the same criteria. We're going to use all the same criteria. Um, we need to see people's records. We need to know that in their practice that they were in, they were also considered low risk. In some situations, I have heard of midwives actually having a conference call with the previous team, you know, uh, to just kind of get a better feel of what is what the birth plan was to begin with and, and that kind of thing. Because of course, the big thing with having your baby outside of the hospital is that you do not have, you cannot get an epidural. <laughs> right. You are going to have an unmedicated birth as far as pain management goes. So what are the criteria? How, how are families screened? How are clients screened as potential candidates for an out of hospital birth? What are you looking for? And what are, what would rule them out? If many people are questioning the safety in this current climate of concern surrounding coronavirus or COVID-19, and many are questioning if maybe they should not go to a hospital for their birth, maybe an, a very a very soon birth. This birth may happen yes. just a couple <laughs> weeks. What, how are you as a midwife, as a care provider, how do you screen them? How do you determine who is a good candidate, whether they're eight weeks pregnant or they're 37 weeks pregnant? What are yes. the screening, what's the screening process? So we use a lot of the same tools that you'll find in any other kind of healthcare environment. So first of all, we're going to take a health history. So we're going to ask questions about, you know, your, your current state of health, your past state of health, including any other, you know, major illnesses you've had, any surgeries you've had. We're going to ask about your, your habits, your allergies, all of that kind of stuff. And within that information, um, we, will, we will gather a lot of information about, um, that, you know, that's one part of it. Mm -hmm. And then another part of it is what has happened during this pregnancy. So basically, has, has the pregnancy been, you know, I hate the word uneventful, but you know what I mean? Has it been, has it been normal? Has, have you had any concerns or red flags come up during the pregnancy? So we would want to ask those questions and see the, those records 
So we would want your labs, any ultrasounds that you'd had. And then basically what midwives do is screen for risk factors. So we need everybody to be in a low risk category. So all of the questions that we ask during our prenatal care and all of the information that we gather is to basically rule out, you know, the big baddies like preeclampsia or, you know, now we're having to, to add additional things for, for coronavirus. So have you had a temperature? Has anyone in your house been sick? Usually our main concern is preeclampsia. That's a big one for the mom. <laughs> that's, that's a big part of what we're looking at. So if anything registers outside of the normal range, then we start having those conversations about, okay, it looks like you've had two blood pressures of over 140, over 90. Let's do some labs, that kind of thing. So it's a very big and complex picture. In Oregon, we have basically a big, long list. They're called the OARs, Oregon Rules and Regulations. They're, they're basically, here are all the pre-existing things that could risk you out, and here are all the things that could develop along the way. Things are not a secret. We give them to you on paper or in you know digital for a digital format from your first prenatal and that is the exact list that we are looking at as well to make sure that you are in a low risk category the screening process is taking a full uh, history is looking at how the pregnancy itself has gone at that point and then continues on through prenatal care absolutely there, something could happen at 38 weeks a lot of times high blood pressure stuff comes up at the very end of pregnancy. So you could have been fine all along, but then all of a sudden blood pressure is creeping up or, or whatever, you know? So um, that is why we have more frequent visits at the end of pregnancy because the body is more taxed when you have a bigger baby inside. And so more things can go sideways. So it's an ongoing uh, assessment process really from absolutely. the entire prenatal yep. And the labor and birth. Yep. And with, uh, so, and we're having to make major modifications. So the midwifery model of care is so based on relationships, trust, not just trust, like the client trusts us, but we also trust them. It's this mutual relationship and trust. And it's, it's just, you know, coronavirus is just really changing it because we are starting to space out our appointments. We are starting to use the internet basically to have some of our visits be not in person in order to reduce our exposure. And we are asking our clients to commit to social distancing because of our safety. During your birth, we're going to be intimate. So we need to be able to trust that you have been being responsible and making responsible choices so that we're not putting ourselves at risk when we're attending you. Well, yourselves and then future families. That's right. Every single person that we attend. So it's, it's really where it's, it's emerging. We're, we're starting to figure out what that looks like. We're following the guidelines of the CDC ACOG, all of that. We're adapting it for midwifery care, of course, because you can never just translate that stuff right. completely. But we are basically creating these protocols from scratch because this is an unprecedented event. Exactly. We've not been here before. Not like this. Nothing like this. Nothing like this. In fact, I was thinking about it. I was like, 
have, have does anyone alive not in this country okay ebola was a thing yes you know in other countries there have been outbreaks that were probably felt pretty similar i the first thing that comes to mind is ebola but in the us we've never had anything like this within anybody who's alive's recent memory the spread so quickly even with ebola and zika this yeah. so quickly with COVID-19 has been unprecedented. So I'm still learning about it. We still don't know, you know, and right. we're still figuring out how to keep moms and babies safe, how to keep them together, right. what the best practices are to reduce, you know, we know there's not vertical transmission. So basically you cannot get it from just giving birth. It's not in your blood. It's not in your amniotic fluid, but what it is in is your respiratory droplets. So basically breathing. you breathe out. Yeah. You breathe out little water droplets and that's where it's at. And so when we have a newborn placed on our chest, which is the best place for a newborn and we look down and we want to kiss our baby and all of that, that's when that possible transmission can take place. So, you know, we don't want to separate moms and babies. Right. It's not healthy for anybody. So it's this dance of having to weigh what's safest for, for everyone, basically, while trying to keep, you know, bonding intact and breastfeeding intact and all of that. And at the time of this recording, even major health organizations don't yet agree on the best way to approach this. This is so new. Information is coming out at, on an hourly basis. We are learning Absolutely. every single day. We cannot possibly know everything we need to know. It's called a novel virus because it's so new and nobody has been exposed to it before now and then everybody's exposed kind of all at once almost, it seems. So we're still learning and we'll know things in a week that we didn't know today. We'll know things in six months that we had no idea today. It's a really frightening and interesting time to be a, a provider. It's, I, I mean, I, my heart goes out to all the pregnant people out there that are just, are, there's already so much just natural concern that goes into just being, you know, becoming a parent and then to throw this on top of it. It's just, it's almost, it's almost too much. It's, it's overwhelming. It's a lot. And so for those families who are considering changing their birth plan, their plan had been to give birth in a hospital and they are considering looking at an out of hospital birth experience attended by a midwife. How do they get started doing this? You said in your story that you looked in the yellow page. <laughs> Where do we start now? Good luck with that. If you've thought about giving birth at home or at a birth center before I really do I really do think it's a safer place than the hospital I do think that community midwives are are a lower risk option for for you know the spread of this virus for sure we're taking it very seriously the first place to look is on the internet you can do a quick google search if you're in portland call me I'm at Andalus Water Birth Center and also there's mana uh, Midwives Alliance of North America has a list of active midwives in, across the U.S. And, you know, ask around, Google it, out-of-hospital midwives. So you would want somebody that's, a, the credential is CPM, Certified Professional Midwife. That basically means that they have fulfilled the national requirement to practice midwifery in the U.S. Certified nurse midwives who also 
attend out of hospital births. It's a very individual and private practice piece. And beware of birth centers. One of the things that I find deceiving is you'll, you'll look up birth center. Oh, I'd like to give birth in a birth center. But it'll be a hospital-affiliated birth center, which may not even be a separate building. It's just what they call the hallway that's basically labor and delivery. Your labor and delivery unit's actually just called birth center. Yeah, we're, we're trying to fight that. That's actually um, deceiving the public. Right. Um, so <laughs> you're gonna look for a freestanding birth center. Actually, on this, if you're listening to this podcast, send us a DM on our Instagram um, and we will do our best to locate somebody that meets those criteria in your area. So. There's lots of ways to find out. It should be, it should be fairly easy to find someone if it is legal in your state. So I want to go over real quick before we wrap up. I want to go over real quick some of the myths as to what would make someone a bad candidate uh, for an out-of-hospital birth. There are some some things that go around that say, make it sound like if you are of a certain age that you would be a bad candidate for. Oh, a that's a big one. Yeah, that is a big one, and that's a that one's kind of close to my heart because I actually got asked with my last baby if I, it wasn't I too old to have a home birth. And I, I kind of paused because I wasn't expecting that question. And I was, I was a little, wait, what? It, it kind of threw me. But I was asked if I was too old to have an out-of-hospital birth, to have a, a planned home birth. Mm-hmm. I was 39 and mm-hmm. Uh, I was, no, no, no. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, that, that person even said to me, well, aren't you considered a geriatric pregnancy? I think I'd last for three minutes. Mm. Um, but so what are some of the things? Feelings. That, <laughs> I have feelings. What are some of the things that people may think would exclude them and rule them out as a candidate for an out-of-hospital birth that in fact yeah. uh, would not be? Yeah, well, you you hit the nail on the head with that one. So basically, as long as you're in good health and you have no other risk factors, we don't care how old you are, as long as you don't have other risk factors. So things that can complicate a woman of a certain age having a baby would be things like gestational diabetes and that kind of thing. So things can couple up. Age itself is not a risk factor. If you are an otherwise healthy and low-risk candidate, your age does not exclude you from having an out-of-hospital birth, okay? Other things are VBACs, at least. Uh, so basically, vaginal birth after cesarean. If you have had a cesarean in the past, well, it, in my state, and I believe there may be some states where it does preclude you, and if you have had one cesarean for sure, you are still a candidate for an out-of-hospital birth, as long as it was a transverse incision and it was an emergency and basically we would need to look at your records to make sure that the procedure was done right the way it should have been but VBAC gestational diabetes so as long as you're able to control your GD with your diet you are still a candidate a lot of hospital-based providers will harp on people that have had a larger baby so a baby over eight pounds. Basically, they will say, well, your baby's so big, it may, you know, that's a risk. We see it regularly. It's okay. As long as it's not something related to gestational diabetes. So some people just have bigger babies and that's normal for them. 
What about factors in terms of how far they are from a hospital? Well, I think that's a really individual thing for each midwife. You know, a midwife in a certain area is going to have a plan for hospital transport. And it's definitely a question to ask. So when you're in the interview process and you are gathering information about, is this for me? Is this safe for me? That's a question to ask. How far are we, you know, what's transport look like? Right. Absolutely. You know, and how far are we from the nearest, you know, hospital with a NICU? And keep in mind in a situation like that where maybe an out-of-hospital birth in the home would be ruled out because of proximity to or lack of proximity to a hospital, that a birth center, a freestanding mm -hmm. birth center, might be another really great option instead. Um, okay, so then another question I have for you about uh, risk factors. Do you have to have given birth before to be a good candidate for an out-of-hospital birth? No, you do not. So they're called primips. We do plenty of primip births. We would like you to have taken some childbirth education classes in order to be as you know educated as you can be with your first time around. But absolutely, you do not have to have given birth before. But for me, in my mind, with these folks that are transferring in late because of uh, COVID-19, it's reassuring if you've had a baby before and you're transferring and you're 38 weeks. <laughs> it's kind of like you had a childbirth education class, in fact, a birth, you know, um, so you're a little bit more educated about and, and if you had a vaginal birth. Even if it was medicated, we know that babies can come out of you. So while it's not a requirement, it's definitely great if you are considering transferring into somebody's care later in the game. So absolutely not. You do not have to have had a baby already. But, you know, we ask those questions. We ask, you know, we want somebody that's committed. You know, we don't want to expose ourselves and, you know, put ourselves at risk for folks that aren't serious about this. So, you know, we are screening people in a different way. If you think that an out-of-hospital birth is something that you want to consider for your family and upcoming birth, please be sure to reach out. We're happy to help you find a resource in your area that can get you started. If you have any more questions, don't hesitate to ask on our social media channels as well as on in, in the comments below for our podcast. We're happy to do what we can. Be sure to check out the links included with our podcast as additional resources for finding a care provider for an out-of-hospital birth in your area. I am Jessica Martin-Weber, your host, and our midwife is Carrie Duncan. Carrie, it's always a pleasure. I can't wait till next time. Me neither. I had so much fun. I, I'm so glad we're doing this. I am too. <laughs> we're just going to have to do a whole lot more. I think <laughs> who knew that this global pandemic would be what makes it. I know. <laughs> Catalyst. Until we meet again, this is Carrie Duncan, the midwife speaking. And I am Jessica Martin Weber, your host. And this has been Midwife Speaking. Thank you.